Good morning. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 12. This morning, we're going to zero in on verses 38 through 42. Matthew 12, starting in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. We need you to fill this room with your presence, with your spirit, that we might hear rightly, that I might communicate rightly, truthfully, directly from your word, that we will be changed by what we hear. I pray, God, that you would meet us in this time, that you would meet your people as we gather around your word. I pray, God, that the truth of who Christ is and of who we are outside of Christ and of what he came to accomplish on our behalf will shine forth today and our hearts will rejoice afresh as we cling to our Savior. It's in his great name that we pray. Amen. So as I was studying this passage, uh, a few thoughts came to mind that would help us have the right frame of mind as we go through these verses. One thought that I had was humans, myself included, we have a sinful tendency to blame God. Something comes up or something doesn't quite work out the way we want it to work out. Um, We often find a way to blame God for it. It's God's fault somehow. I did right. God didn't agree with me. Don't blame me. Blame God. Another thought that came to mind is we also have a sinful tendency or desire to want more than what God is pleased to give us. I heard some chuckles because y'all can easily agree with that one, right? We're like little kids. We get something and it's, it's, it's good, but oh man, I really wanted this. If I could have had that, 
I would have really been happy, God. Right? And we see both of these realities show up actually in the garden. First, with the blaming part of it, when Adam is addressed by God, what does Adam say? The woman that you gave me. So it's her fault. And if that's not enough, it's your fault. We blame God. And then we also see that in the garden where God gave them this paradise full of his presence, full of his grace, full of his goodness. They could have eaten freely from every tree except one. And what happened? Well, they wanted more than what God was pleased to give them. Because remember, when the serpent comes to the woman, what is the proposition? You can be like God. God's holding out on you. You should want more than what God is pleased to give you. And so those two things show up not only in the garden, but they also show up in our lives. And in fact, they show up also in this passage that we have before us this morning. We see it in our text where the scribes and the Pharisees, they blame God. They want more than what God is pleased to give them. And then we see how Jesus, God in the flesh, responds to these scribes and these Pharisees. And so our outline for this morning, ironically enough, is the same outline we had last week. We have a demand, we have a diagnosis, and then we have a day. But this time, in verse 38, the demand that we have doesn't come from Jesus, it comes from his opposition. Verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now remember, Jesus has just called them brood of vipers. And if you're confused by that, that didn't please them. That didn't make them endeared to Christ. They were already set out to destroy him. So when he calls them a brood of vipers, offspring of the serpent, that just ramps up their animosity. But here, as they start their rebuttal to Christ, as they make this demand of Christ, they cloak their animosity. You see, when they say teacher, it's not that they are really under, agreeing that he's this teacher. They're feigning this. They have this crowd around them, all these people. And so they don't want to come off as, yeah, we just hate this guy. They don't want the crowds to just be able to understand their animosity to Christ. So they cloak it in teacher. Hey, teacher. And we can see this often in our own time. Say, for example, there's a president that you may or may not like. Right? Or somebody, a senator, that you may or may not agree with. And so oftentimes when people address the senator or the president that they don't like, they start off with senator or president. But the next things that come out of their mouth reveal how much they hate that person. Now, so here the scribes and the Pharisees do the exact same thing. They're feigning their respect for Christ. And not only do they feign their respect for Christ, they are feigning that they're concerned about receiving him as a God-given messenger. It's as if they're saying, listen, we love God. 
you know, we're the religious leaders. We take care of the law. We look over the law. And we're really concerned about receiving you because we need more evidence. We don't just want to go off and receive this person who claims to be God in the flesh without sufficient evidence. We do want to receive you, teacher, but we need a sign from you. Now, mind you, this whole thing started first with Jesus healing a man who had the withered hand, sign, and then Jesus restoring sight and speech to a man who was oppressed by a demon, another sign. And if we keep going back in Matthew, we find time and time again, Jesus performs miracle after miracle after miracle. So it's not like they have not been given signs that validated who Jesus was. But what they're really doing, though, they're asking for something more. They're saying, hey, what you gave us previously did not sufficiently satisfy us. As we stand here as religious leaders, we're not convinced by you, Jesus. We're not convinced by what you've done. Give us something greater. And in fact, when Luke talks about this passage, he adds two words to help us better understand this demand of the Pharisees and the scribes. Luke 11, verse 15 and 16. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So in those two words, what they're saying is, give us some undeniable evidence from heaven. I don't know, maybe make the sun turn black. I don't know, make the stars fall from the skies. Do something that is so obvious that we can only but believe you. And so here, essentially what they're saying is, it's not us, it's you, Jesus. You have not given us sufficient proof that you are, in fact, the Messiah. And so we have this demand from the scribes and the Pharisees, where they blame God, they blame Jesus, but here how, here's how Jesus responds to this demand. But he answered them in verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Just like last week, he pinpoints their animosity, their opposition, not on a lack of evidence, but on who they are. You're evil and you're adulterous. And notice though, when he says this, when he gives this diagnosis, he doesn't just ascribe it to the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, this is true of the entire generation. That word generation, if we were to translate it in modern vernacular, is this idea of people who are cut from the same cloth. People who are living at the same time and share the same beliefs. And so, in a sense, Jesus is saying, you represent your entire generation. You represent humanity. You make a demand, not because you are truly seeking truth. Not that you truly want to know if God has sent me, but you want to be validated in your rejection of me. 
And let me just tell you, the sign that you're seeking is evil. It's adulterous. So he pinpoints exactly why they refuse to receive him. Now listen to 1 Corinthians 1 verse 22. This may sound apropos for our passage. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. And in verse 23, it says, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block for Jews. So Jesus says, listen, the, the problem isn't you don't have evidence. And in fact, when Matthew opens up his gospel, when Jesus is in the temple, you have these old individuals, right, who you like, stay away from my baby. What are you doing? They take up baby Jesus in their arms and they say, listen, he is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of the prophecies. The word of God has been fulfilled. They didn't have any signs. They had the word of God. They trusted the word of God. And so Jesus says, you're evil. You're sinful. It's not about not having evidence. It's about you being opposed to the will and work and messenger of God. Not only are you evil, he says of them, you're faithless. Now, to understand this rightly, we have to understand that God viewed Israel as having a marital relationship with him, in a sense. God was the husband, and the nation of Israel was said to be his bride, his wife. And so when Jesus says, you're adulterous, he's bringing this to the forefront of their minds, that you are faithless to God. As you seek this sign, you are showcasing that you are full of idolatry. Listen to Jeremiah 3. Verses 6 through 14. It's a longer passage, but it drives home this thought of this husband-wife idolatry committed by the nation of Israel. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that all of the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. But she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly. She polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart. But in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God 
and scatter your favors among foreigners under every green tree that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. God pronounces that his people, Israel, his bride, his wife, had been faithless to him. They had committed adultery against him. And in the context of Jeremiah, that adultery was seen in how they worshipped false gods. They set up idols on the high places, under every stone and every tree. They turned from the living God, the one true God, and worshipped that which by nature was not God. And yet, in his mercy, he called them back. If you would but return to me, he says to them, put down your adultery, give it up, and I will receive you. As a result of this adultery that they committed, they were sent into exile. They were sent into captivity. And so when they come out of captivity, they find themselves free from the Babylonians, and they say, okay, we're done with that. No more idols, no more images of false gods. We will serve the one true God. But here when Jesus says, you adulterous generation, he's not saying you have built these temples and these idols again. He's saying your heart. You have committed idolatry and faithlessness in your heart. Now mind you, Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to religious leaders. People who, by the looks of it, were righteous. They had it all together. You would not have been able to look at a Pharisee or a scribe and say, look, that's an immoral person. But Jesus knew their hearts. You see, it's not just the person who looks like a wretch that needs Christ. It's the person who Wears a nice suit, wears a nice tie, speaks well, is cordial to people. That person also needs Christ. And so Jesus says, you're sinful and you're evil. Now before we move on, think about sign seeking in our day. Think about the desire for something greater. Right? We, I need signs. We need miracles, people often say. If there was just more miracles, like in the first century when Jesus walked the earth, people would believe. Or if there were just more signs and miracles in our day, my faith would be stronger. That's an ouch moment for some of us. Now let me lovingly rebuke you. That's sinful. That's faithless. Not only that, it opens you up to be deceived. In the last days, right before Christ returns, there's going to be false signs and wonders all over the place. People are going to be amazed by what they see. And they're going to say, this has to be 
of God. It's too amazing. Why? Because they didn't receive the word of God. They didn't find God's word as sufficient. You've got the word of God that's sufficient for you. You don't need, you shouldn't be seeking some sign outside of the revelation that's been given to us in the scriptures. And so Jesus says, you can't blame me. It's you. You're sinful. You're adulterous. But then he, in his grace, kind of gives them something else. He could have just diagnosed them as sinful, as adulterous, as evil, and talked about judgment. But notice that as he tells them no sign will be given to you, he also promises a sign. He says, accept the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what is the sign of Jonah? Some say the sign of Jonah is the preaching. That when he went and preached, that was the sign because the people responded appropriately. But I believe the sign of the prophet Jonah was actually Jonah himself. Because he says, listen, for... Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. You see that? That's the sign of Jonah. Jonah himself became the sign. And in fact, most likely what happened was when Jonah refused to go initially, unwise decision. He had a three-day vacation inside of a fish. And inside the fish, he repented. He cried out to God, and God had the fish spit him up on the shore. Now, most likely, there's people on the shores, and they see what happened. Wait a minute. Where did he just come from? I saw a fish, and then I saw a man. I saw a man, then I saw a fish. I saw the fish mouth open, and then out came a man. I need to hear what he has to say. So most likely that message traveled. And so when Jonah shows up to the Ninevites, to Nineveh, most likely they've heard some underpinnings about this man who came out of this fish. And ironically enough, the Ninevites were known to have a god to them that was called the fish god. Talking about God's humor. And so Jonah shows up and he preaches to them. And he became the sign of one who was as good as dead. But he came back to life, so to speak. And as a response, those individuals heard Jonah, saw Jonah, and they repented. And so what I believe the sign of Jonah is, is Jonah himself. And so to apply this to Christ... Jonah, who in my estimation, did not die inside the well, the great fish, but was a type of Christ. He had a type of resurrection. He was as good as dead. But Jesus himself actually died, was actually raised from the grave, and he himself would be the sign. 
So Jesus says, you want a sign outside of me. I won't give you that. I'll give you myself. I'll give you the resurrection from the grave. Now listen, I'm a basketball player, you know, and really good basketball players like Steph Curry, for example, he's able to call the shots. Hey, I'm going to make this shot. Shoots it, he makes it. Steps back a little further. Hey, I'm going to make this shot. Shoots it and he makes it. Now, as we witness that, we're like, man, he's good. Just imagine Jesus telling these Pharisees and his scribes and his crowd, I'm going to die, but I'm going to come back to life. And listen, my resurrection is not going to be like any resurrection you've seen before. Because everybody else who came back to life, they died again. And so Jesus says, I am the son. Here's another thing we must deal with in this passage. Because some say, okay, Jesus said he was going to be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, right? Well, we know Jesus was not in the tomb for a full three days and a full three nights. He died on a Friday. He was in the tomb all day Saturday. And he rose on Sunday. So how do we harmonize that? Well, in the Jewish mind, that wasn't a problem. In the Jewish mind of Jesus' day, any part of a day was sufficient to represent the whole day. And in fact, when the Pharisees go to the Roman leaders, they say, listen, this imposter said he would rise after three days. And so what do they do? They send the guard to secure the tomb. There's no problem there. In the Jewish mind, a part of a day was as good as a whole day. So Jesus was actually dead for three days. He actually fulfilled the prophecy that he gave here about himself. Now, before we move on, I want us to note something. Note the graciousness and mercy of God. Here you have sinful men telling God, demanding of God a sign or something that would prove that they were, in fact, evil and sinful. They did not receive Jesus' testimony about themselves. And also a sign that would prove that Jesus was, in fact, the fulfillment of the passages that spoke about the Messiah. They're saying, hey, convince us that we're evil. Convince us that you're God. Convince us that we need to be saved. Give us evidence of this. And God in his mercy says, I'll give you the greatest sign you can imagine. Although I don't owe you anything. Although you are responsible and you cannot blame me. I will give you the greatest sign that validates the message of my servant. Sadly enough, though, even Christ's resurrection did not satisfy most of his opponents. Do you remember when Jesus told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? Remember in the parable, the first thing the rich man asked of Abraham is, hey, Father Abraham, Send Lazarus 
to relieve me. I'm in this flame. I'm under torment. Send him, Father Abraham. But when Father Abraham says, no, I can't do that, the next thing that the rich man asks of Father Abraham is to send Lazarus to his brothers. This is what he says in Luke 19, verses 27 through 31. This is the rich man speaking. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they shall also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, they have the word of God. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. scribes and the Pharisees, they sent a guard to secure the tomb, to ensure that the disciples did not come and take Christ's body away and then claim that he had risen from the grave. And then when their works did not work, when Jesus did come forth from the grave, did they repent? Did they believe? You know what they did? They said, listen, we'll give you money guards. We'll protect you. Just say that his disciples stole the body. He rose from the grave. He called the shot before it took place. And they still refused to believe. So that right there is enough to showcase that this request, this demand of Christ was not genuine. And so we have a demand, we have a diagnosis that comes with a promise of resurrection, and then finally, we have a day. Verses 41 and 42. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now first, let me say that a gospel that does not demand repentance is a false gospel. Listen, the gospel is not Jesus loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. That doesn't call for repentance. That doesn't call for trusting in Christ. The gospel is not that Jesus is here to make your life materially better. He will give you the houses, the cars, whatever you need. The gospel is preached that Christ came to save sinners. That humanity 
presently speaking, is underneath the wrath of God. And he holds that wrath back so that his son might come into the world to redeem all who would trust and believe him, who would turn from their sins and trust in Christ alone for their salvation. That gospel calls for repentance. And so Jesus said, the men of Nineveh will serve as an example to this generation and to all generations that do not repent. Because someone less than me, he says, came to them with a message of warning, a message of repentance, of impending doom, unless they turned and they repented. There's hope here for us, though. Maybe you think in your mind, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the worst sinner possible. How could it be that God would forgive me? He, he, he just can't do it. The men of Nineveh, they were scoundrels. They were men of blood, engaging in all kinds of wickedness. And so God sends Jonah to them. They hear this message and they repent. They understood that, yes, what God is saying through this man is absolutely true. They agreed with God. They turned from their evil, and God did not destroy them. That's what repentance looks like. And if you think you're the worst sinner, there's hope for you still. All you must do is repent. And so when Jesus says, these men will serve as an example to condemn that generation and all generations. He's also saying that our problem is not a lack of evidence. Our problem is a lack of repentance. It's not that we don't have sufficient evidence. Listen, I could have had this whole message be centered on the irrefutable proofs of the resurrection. I'm an apologist. I love giving arguments that support the claims of the Bible, I could have given you a thousand arguments. But that's not your problem. It's that you lack repentance. You don't want to turn from your sin. And this is why he gives the men, the men of Nineveh as an example. And then secondly, he gives the queen of the south. You'll find this story in 1 Kings 10, and I'll summarize it. You can Go home and read it later tonight or today. But essentially, this queen of the south, she comes from about 1,200 miles away to hear the wisdom of King Solomon. Now, in your mind, you're thinking 1,200 miles, that's not that far. Hop on a plane, I'm there in a few hours. She couldn't do that. She goes on this long journey. That's what Jesus said. She came from the ends of the earth. And she came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. But that wasn't just all she came to hear. Verse 1 in 1 Kings 10 says, Now when the queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, it was connected to who God was. Verse 5, there was no more breath in her. She was astounded by what she heard and what she saw. Verse 6, she affirmed that the report was true. Verse 9, she blessed Solomon's God. 
She blessed the Lord. In verse 10, she honored Solomon by what she gave him. Essentially, this pagan Gentile woman, which would have made the scribes and the Pharisees angry, she was converted. She heard about the name of Solomon, about his fame, how that was connected to the one true God. She takes this great journey, and then she blesses the Lord. She had less revelation, just like the men of Nineveh had less revelation than the scribes and the Pharisees, and yet they repented and believed. And if we were to fast forward, to the end times, to the, to the last day, the day of judgment that's being referred to here. What Jesus is saying is when the final verdicts are cast, when the ungodly of all generations stand before the throne, stand before Christ himself, they will be condemned by the fact that they did not receive the truth that is in Christ. They will be condemned because of the truth that they had, they rejected. I want to make a few more points quickly. Jesus said he was greater than Jonah. Well, Jonah was a prophet. Jesus was the greatest prophet. Jonah did not want to go. G Jonah did not want God to be merciful to the Ninevites. Jonah hated those to whom God sent. Jesus, being far superior than Jonah, loved the ones to whom he was sent. Jesus was thrilled to go and lay down his life for his people. Jesus cared about the eternal well-being of those to whom he called to repent. Jesus said he was greater than Solomon. Well, Solomon was the king who had all the riches and all the wisdom. He was the king who built the house for God. Well, Jesus is the creator of riches. In him is hidden all the wisdom and treasures of God. He is greater than Solomon by nature because he is God. He is greater than Solomon by glory. He is greater than Solomon because his kingdom expands entire ages. And his kingdom will not end. Jesus is greater than Solomon because Solomon was a son of David. But Jesus is the son of David. So Jesus says, I'm greater than Jonah. I'm greater than Solomon. You should repent. You should repent. And so Jesus is the something more. You're seeking something greater. You're seeking something more. It's Jesus. You won't find anything greater than Jesus. You won't find anything more stable than the word of God. So trust in the word of God. Trust that what you have is sufficient for life and for godliness. And if you are here this morning and you have not turned from sin and trusted Christ, just know that you are not validated 
in your unrepentance and your unbelief. You have sufficient evidence. You need to repent and trust Christ. Romans 10, verse 17. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we are thankful for your word. That is the prophetic word more sure. That we don't need signs to further validate the person and work of Christ. We're thankful that the resurrection is your signature to the life of Christ. The resurrection is your vindication of your son. That all that he claimed about humanity, all that he claimed about himself, is absolutely true. Teach us to trust the word that you have given us. Teach us to rely upon the fullness of Christ. That he is our something greater. He is our something more. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.